is Galentine's over at the Quick's house, so uh, you might want to partake of that. It'll be a good time together. Not only that, uh, the kickoff for C3 and um, just gathering together. Um, I just want to. I know coffee's involved. That's what I remember. Um, <laughs> but coffee, community, and Christ. That's the other part, really important part. Yeah, Katie looks at me with a sense of condemnation. No, I'm just kidding. No condemnation. It's C3, not C4. Um, guys, just we have something for you too. Wednesday is Valentine's Day, and I'll just leave it at that. You might want to figure out what to do with that, so uh, that'd be great. Um, we will have a men's work day as well in early March, um, so just a reminder there. It'll be a great time for us to gather together, uh, fellowship together. One other thing, let me just mention, um, we were talking this morning as elders getting ready. You know, we have a lot of children in our children's ministry, so let me just encourage you, uh, if you're not involved in children's ministry and can... Uh, can spend a little time doing the work of the ministry together. It'll help uh, those who uh, do that regularly to give them breaks so they can attend worship service um, as well. So if you, if you have uh, availability, interest there, it'd be great. See Pastor Kevin or honestly um, uh, Melissa and others that are there as well. There's plenty of opportunity there and, and we just really love to partake of that or love for you to partake of that in, in doing the work of the ministry together. Let me, uh, let me pray. Father, I am... Um, I thank you this morning for your word. And God, um, as, as Nathan prayed earlier, God, would you use your word to change our lives so that we would be more like our Lord? God, I, I pray that the words I speak will accurately represent and communicate what your word has said to us, that we might live for you and glorify you with our lives. So, Father, work among us as a people this morning, both individually and collectively, so that uh, what is true from your word would become true in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, you know, there's, there's things in our lives that really motivate us. They, they really drive us. Uh, in some cases, so strongly that it dictates the direction of our lives. Uh, there may be significant events in your life that, that actually occurred that literally has, have dictated the large course of your life. Hopefully, uh, for us, that has first and foremost been our coming to Christ, that God worked in our lives to draw us to our Lord, to give us a new spirit so that we would place our faith in him. And hopefully that is something that has directed our lives and continues to direct our lives today. And there are other things. I know for, for some it's traumatic, event, traumatic events in our lives. And they have in some way, shape, or form redirected our life. Uh, for some it's the joyous events in our life. Um, you know, I, I had master plan for my life when I was 18. And it all, had to have, it all had to do with getting a doctor by the time I was like 28 Instead, I had five children by the time I was 28, so it's a different way to get a doctorate, or at least to play a lot of doctor when they decide to hurt themselves, right? But God redirected my life in, in a great and joyous way. I mean, I, I look at it now, I don't, have, I don't have a single thing of regret, and we, we take great joy in God's blessing of our children. But God will do that, won't he? There's just things in your life that will change and will fuel us, and at times there are things in our lives that drive us and fuel us maybe negatively as well. You know, there's also things in our life that end up directing or steering us. You ever, you're driving a car, and you're going down the road, and, uh, you know, if the, the road is sloped, so the water 
kind of peels off when it rains. Now I realize here in South Texas, we see it so often, we just, we accept flooding as a, a, you know, that five days of flood and we just get over it and we just keep driving. But if you're in a rainy area, that road, it will be sloped to help drain the water off. And what does your car naturally do because of that? Kind of just pulls to, to the side. Hopefully they slope it to the right so you don't, you know, go to the other lane. But that way, or if you ever, you've been where you'll see the signs, it'll say grooved roadway ahead because you know those grooves are going to make your tires do funny things. You go down the road, so you have to be a little more careful as you're going down. Or maybe you're like me this morning. As I was driving down the, the road, in my, we call it my luxury truck. For those of you who don't know, that's my minivan. Um, and it has a nice broad side to it. And so when the wind blows, guess what happens? I have to remember to signal because I'm coming over to your lane. Or I have to turn against it because that wind is just going to kind of push me over as I'm going down the road. You know... If you've ever driven through a particularly strong windstorm, you know the experience, or you've just ridden in a car, and you just feel that push. And sometimes it's that constant wind. Uh, you know, any of you have driven to El Paso from here, you know, once you get beyond what about, you get beyond Kerrville, what happens? You know, it kind of turns into flat land, and you're just driving. And if there's wind blowing, and that wind's blowing south, you're turning a little left the whole way, aren't you, just to keep the car in the center of the lane, and it just kind of pushes against you. And he's pushing against you. And so that happens in our life. That, that happens in our life. There are things that a lot of times we don't realize that are pushing us and causing us to direct and steer our lives in ways we may not realize. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want us to consider something that, that can be that kind of wind that pushes against the direction of our lives and begins to direct us in ways and steer us in ways that may be subtle and sometimes even unnoticed because we become so accustomed to it. But other times it becomes very obvious and overt because it surprises us and we don't realize it's still there. And very specifically, what I want to talk about this morning is the fear of man. For many of us, the fear of man, if I, I dare say for all of us in some way, directs our lives many times subtly and in unnoticed ways and at other times in dramatic, overt, and obvious ways. And this morning I, I want us to consider at a Psalm 18 this question that is asked, what can man do to me? And, and I want us to see as we go through Psalm 118 the dangerous draw of the fear of man to turn us away from trusting in God. That dangerous draw of the fear of man to, to draw us away from trusting in God. You know, when I, when I preach each Sunday, and, and as we gather together and we study God's Word together on Sunday mornings before worship service, or Wednesday nights we gather together, or even as, as Galentine comes and, and, and as we look at C3 or the guys we gather on Tuesday morning for men's Bible study, there's this fundamental underlying basic working model that's assumed. And that is that in the ultimate sense, if we are followers of Christ, what we are seeking to do is to be like him in our lives, right? It's a very kind of simple, basic working model. We're assuming that we are coming to hear and to be influenced by one another so that we would become more like our Lord and follow him with the entirety of our life. Because in doing so, we believe that God will be glorified and that this is for our good. 
And we seek not just to believe the way our Lord believes, right? We don't just want to think the way he thinks. We want to do that. But we want to go a step farther. We want to be like him, which means we want to behave like our Lord. We would actually want to make the same decisions and the same reactions, the same, the same behaviors that our Lord has is what we would like to see in our lives. And as I preach and, and as I, I go through scripture, this is one of the things I'm thinking. Not just to make us moral beings that are good, but literally to make us, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that God would use the word of God to make us like our Lord. And so when we look at Scripture and we come, this is what we are, we are looking to do is become more like Christ. And it, it really works towards how we are formed. And that's, I mean, that's why we come, right? Because it's an act of formation of becoming like our Lord. Now, in doing so, you know, we come to be encouraged by one another, right? I mean, isn't it encouraging? I mean, even uh, as you can tell, I've been fighting a head cold and, and I'm on the tail end of it. And so I, I really should have not sung this morning, right? Okay, there's other reasons I should have not sung. I understand that, but for the sake of argument, it's only the head cold. But the reality is, is that I, I can't help myself. And I'm being serious. It is encouraging to me. It is helpful to me to sing along with others that we are reminding one another through song of what our Lord has done, who he is, what we are to do, who we are to be. And it, it grips me in such a way that, that I, I, I'm encouraged and I want to be more like Christ, right? Um, and not only that, but we come and we, we gather together to, to gain a better understanding of how we are to live our lives for Christ. So that's part of what we're doing this summer, but that includes why we may not always do that, right? Part of hearing the word of God is to be convicted by it to say, oh, this is the way my Lord would expect me and call me to be and to do and behave, but I am not that way. It's called conviction. It leads us to repentance of sin, whether it be active sin or sins of omission where we're not obeying. And it convicts us, but, but we do that so that we now know how we should respond, so that we do live our lives for Christ, right? And this is this underlying kind of basic model of what we're doing as we come together as Christians. Well, last week as I talked about this, I was giving us a warning and a reminder that we have to always have our confidence and trust in God, our, our confidence and trust must always remain in God. And the point last week was that word always, right? Because if we're followers of Christ, we have placed our trust in Christ. And what we are saying is we want to trust him fully, right? And by, what I mean by that is in every area of our lives. At the heart of who we are, because God has worked in our lives, we're saying we want to trust you fully. But the problem is we betray that, don't we? And we don't always trust him fully. Like we, we get blown by winds like the fear of man. Well, this week, what I want us to see is our fear of man can draw us or drive us away from our trust in God. That's basically what I, I want you to walk out this morning is this basic idea so that in your own lives you can think, how is it that this concept of the fear of man 
How is it drawing me away or driving me away from my trust in God? And so that's, that's what I want us to, to think about this morning as we go through Psalm 118. Now, more specifically, our fear of man, it can reduce our confidence in God, particularly in his character, and in in, in, as you will see in Psalm 118, in his steadfast love or his loyal loving kindness, depending on your translation, that, that is talked about there. And I want us to, to see that from Psalm 118, but I, I want to start as we work into that to question about what do I mean by this concept of the fear of man, right? It's a shorthand phrase to try to describe a larger concept. Well, let, let's just talk about fear at, at a general level. Let, let's start there. If I'm going to define fear of man, let's start with fear, and then we'll get to the modifier of man. Fear at, at a kind of basic core level is the desire to avoid undesired or negative consequences, right? In some way, fear is driven by we want to avoid undesired or negative consequences, right? Um, when I was in school, well, when I was in middle school, the way you would ask, so the way we, we call, we were kind of laughing about this, Dion and I were uh, a while back, how you describe what it meant to be dating somebody in middle school. So there was the, are you going around together? I don't, fortunately, I lived in a block growing up that was a circle, so I guess we could have. We would just walk in circles together. I'm not sure what that meant. Uh, it, when, for me, it was, will you go with me with no specified location that we're going to? Will you go with me? Right? Right? And, okay, being the brave-hearted guy that I was, this was my strategy. Write a note that you had it. Had two check boxes, right? Yes and absolutely. That was the two check. Oh, no, I had a no on there. And, and there she is. You're going to ask her. I see her. Hey, I got a question for you. Yeah, what's your locker number? Oh, well, it's this. Okay. Why do you ask what my locker number is? Oh, no reason. Then what do you do? You take the note and you slip it in the locker, right? For, you know why? There's a chance she'll check that box no, right? So the, the, the unintended or the, the avoided consequence, the negative consequence, I don't want you to check no, right? But I was dumb enough to put it on there. I should have put yes and other, you know, something you can fill in. But I, I put it in there, and you slip it in the locker. You know what that does? It gives her plausible deniability. I don't know the note. I never found it, never saw it, don't know what you're talking about, et cetera. You know what it does for me? I don't have to face you face-to-face when you go, are you serious? You know, have you seen yourself in a mirror? And I'm like, yeah, I have. Because when I was younger, I could turn this way, and all you saw was my head. You know, it was, it was that, that kind of guy. And so we do that in our lives, though, don't we? I mean, it's such a funny illustration from like when I'm growing up in middle school, but haven't you done that in life? You do things, and you're like, you know what, I'm not going to go there, whether it be literally a place or maybe it's emotionally a place because you want to avoid negative consequences that you don't want to have visited upon you. And that's what fear does. Fear just says, I'm going to avoid that in some way, shape, or form, is that desire to avoid it so I don't get the negative consequences. So what's the fear of man? Well, the fear of man is, you could say, is generally the desire to avoid undesired negative consequences from a particular person or persons, right? 
That is, there is a person or a group of people possibly that you want to avoid those negative consequences from. And so because of the, that desire can drive us to make decisions that we may not normally want to make, right? So fearful we will do things, and we, we, we see this over and over our life, that it can drive us in ways it shouldn't. But here's the deal. When you look at the Bible, it doesn't always look negatively upon the fear of man. It doesn't. The Bible does not always look at the, upon the fear of man as negative. In fact, at times it actually calls for it. It actually says you should. Let me give you some examples. The first example is children. Leviticus 19, 1-3, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere... Or the word is fear. That's what it is. Fear or reverence. Like King James, it'll say fear there. New American Standard says reverence. The NIV or the Holman Christian Standard Bible says respect. The, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, translates it with the word phobos, which we get our word phobia from. You should fear his mother and father. And you shall keep my Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. It actually calls for some form of fear, right? Some form of way to realize you owe some sort of desire to follow, fall under this person, right? And that's the thing about fear. Fear, used scripturally, has this broader idea, but part of it is to recognize that person has responsibilities or that that party has responsibilities to bring about things in life and, and so you in your life so you should exercise fear of them it doesn't actually look at it negatively the way it gets talked about in Ephesians if you remember is that children to obey their parents that's the way it talks about it in Romans 13 it talks about fearing governing authorities everyone's favorite passage when taxes are due right Romans 13, 1, just reading there through verse 7, let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Right? He goes on to say, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a, interesting word, not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. That is, I mean, just take the sentence for what it's saying. It's saying. In other words, they bring about a fear for bad conduct. That's what they're supposed to be doing. Don't behave badly. You're supposed to behave properly, the governing authorities would. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Paul asked a rhetorical question to actually make a statement. You should have fear of those who are in authority. Now, here, it carries the idea of, of doing what they have asked. There's a respect idea here, right? Because I realize we can use the word fear in this ultimate sense of phobia that it's just a pure dread, right? Okay, I realize you dread taxes like I do. But my point being is not that dread. I'm talking about it drives us in such a way 
that we just make irrational decisions as it were. This one is saying, no, there's actually a good fear of authority that calls us to fall under behavior, fall under them and behave in ways that are righteous and right and to be expected. Another one is in Ephesians 5.33, which we, have, we read earlier going through Ephesians. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she, and here the word is interpreted respect, or translated respects her husband. The actual word is that Greek word phobos, or phobia, or phobeo is the, is the, um, the uh, verbal form. It's fear. That's how we would normally. But the idea, again, carries a, a larger concept the husband has a responsibility to care for his wife and to provide godly leadership. And this is why here it gets, the translators translate it respect because they're saying to, to wives, hey, there is a proper way to fear, right? And again, not dread, not an abusive husband. I have to do an, if you hear my sermon on that, I, I, I belabored this to such a degree that I was asked, like, man, are you going to preach the next sentence? But the reality is, is it's not that fear, but it is a respect. It is a falling under the authority and understanding this is the way life is to be lived. So I'm, my point being is, and we go on, and I'll give some other examples and counterexamples, the fear of man in and of itself is not bad in all cases, right? And we have to be careful with that because then people can go around, and we're going to see, I'm going to give another example, well, I don't fear anyone. Okay, the Bible actually sees that almost as an act of ludicrousy. That you would have no fear of anyone, and, and we'll get to that in a second. But here's the point. A fear of man has to be grounded in godliness. It has to be grounded in godliness. I, let me say this and go back. I think in slide order I, I have this slightly different. But what I'm saying here is we should fear or and think of the idea of respect to fall under the authority of those who, one, God has established as an authority over us, Right? And two, are doing that which God has established them to do. They are earnestly seeking to do that. Because, look, we will find examples, and we're actually, as I even go through some examples, this is why you have to understand the nuance of the fear of man. There are times that the fear of man, men can access, act, let me get the word out, ask us, there we go, to do ungodly things. But remember, the proper fear of man is rooted in godliness, is grounded in godliness, which means that a proper fear of man is rooted in the fear of God. Isn't it interesting? God, this is, and I, and I realize, you're going to read in 1 John that, that, that true love, that love casts out fear. But here's the deal. It's actually talking about this whole idea that if you truly fear God, it displaces another fear, and that is the fear of man. Because you see, what's happening scripturally is when it talks about fearing man, it's because you're fearing those who God has established, not just who you've established as the idol of your heart. And so a proper fear of man is rooted in the fear of God. Let me give you some five examples. These gave you both positive and negative examples, examples and counterexamples, as they were, of how we see this even in Scripture. Matthew 2.22. Here we see Joseph, as he returns from Egypt with Jesus and Mary, there is fear that he has of Archelaus and what he might do. There is a rightful fear of man in this case. 
It says, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over uh, Judea in place of his father Herod, so Herod, had, Herod is gone, now Archelaus' son has come, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. I mean, just think about the practical implications of this. Joseph understood there was real danger of taking Jesus back into Judea and said, this would not be wise, and driven by the fear of what Archelaus would do, the revelation of God, God said, no, you don't want to go there. You want to go over to Galilee. And so that's where he goes. Of course, God, isn't it interesting that God uses that so that now he becomes Jesus of Nazareth, right? And so God even uses that to carry out his sovereign purposes to accomplish it. So there is wise response in realizing Bluntly, Archelaus may be as crazy as his father was, and, and you remember what Herod was doing. Well, I got to get rid of these threat to my throne, so I'm going to kill all the Hebrew like children or two. And so there's this weeping that occurs that fulfills Old Testament prophecy. He sees it again, and here's a positive response, as it were, to a fear of man. He's not being he's not being unfaithful. Quite the opposite. Uh, God is doing this, uh, interesting enough, so that the Messiah <clears throat> would stay alive. That's how he sovereignly worked it out. Another example is Herod. Here's, a, here's an ungodly man that properly fears another man. In Mark 6.20, for Herod feared John, John the Baptist, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. He, he was worried about this righteous guy, right? And so there is a proper fear of the righteousness of man. And, and that's, he responds to that. An ungodly man responds in a proper way. Like, Ooh, this is not somebody I should take lightly. Another example is in the parable of the unrighteous judge. It's actually a parable about prayer and trusting God is what it's really about. But just listen to the underlying assumptions that go into this parable. Luke 18, verse 1, I'll start reading there, and he says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they thought that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So it's really a parable about prayer, right? But what I want you to hear here is, is these underlying uh, assumptions that go into the, the parable. And he said... In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And then the lesson from this is the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Do, do you notice how he labels, here's a person that does not fear God and he does not fear man. So our Lord calls him what kind of judge? An unrighteous judge. Like this, this is, doesn't make sense. Like this is, this is a judge off his axis, Right? What's driving this guy's decision? Interesting enough, you know what drove this guy's decision? Annoyance. Isn't that what drove it? Okay, this, this lady's just going to continually keep coming. So she's going to, interesting way to, to translate it, she will beat me down, right? 
which is not a rational way to make a decision. And that's part of the argument that our Lord has advanced, because hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect? In other words, those who he's chosen that are his children, when they come to pray him, if this unrighteous judge who doesn't fear God or man will end up giving in, what do you think the God who truly loves you will do, right? Who is just in all ways. The righteous God. You, you see the contrast. And the point here is that here, not fearing man is seen to be odd, just as not fearing God should be odd. But the point being is that it is unnatural not to have some fear of authority. That's, that's the idea behind this. The next one, if you look, is, is actually Peter. Paul confronts Peter in Galatians 2, or actually recounts his confronting. He says, For before certain men, excuse me, before certain men came from James, he, that is Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, Peter, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Here, the fear of man is seen as negative. He wants to be accepted by the circumcision party in some way, shape, or form. He doesn't want to be rejected by them. And so it drives Peter to make a decision. In fact, Paul goes on about how he confronts him and confronts him to his face and says, this is just wrong. Right? But the point being is, now you see an example of fear of man that is negative. And then you get to Jesus, who says in Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Our Lord says, don't fear them just because they can kill you. For the record, I'm a little scared if you can kill me. Right? I mean, it, it, it's a natural reaction, Right? And so our Lord has to tell us, don't fear those who can kill you, and that's all they can do, right? That's the implication. In fact, if you read the parallel in Luke 12, you, you see that, Luke 12, 4. He says, you need to fear the one that not only can kill your body, but can do what? Destroy your soul. His point being is, you should fear God way more than you should fear man. And here's the principle at work. Our fear of man can never be elevated over our fear of God. That's the principle at work. It's not, do not fear man in any way, shape, or form, only fear God. It's actually, you have to fear man based out of your fear of God. So you never elevate the fear of man over your fear of God. And that's, that's what happens. That wind that blows against our lives, like that car going down the road, it's that fear of man that pushes and we start letting it direct our lives. Sometimes it's just a steady wind. Sometimes it's the gust that blows into the other lane. Sometimes it's the hurricanes that, that turn us over. And so we begin to make decisions based solely off our fear of others and not off of our fear of God. And, and what we're saying, the principle of work is our fear of man can never be elevated over our fear of God. So this is where Psalm 118, 
So what differentiates a proper godly fear of man from an improper sinful fear of man? Right? Because basically I just told you you should fear man sometimes and not fear man other times. So hold a minute. How do I help differentiate those two? Well, basically I want to use Psalm 118. We're going to walk through this. It's basically a way to show us that very thing. To give us some diagnostic questions, five of them that we can draw from Psalm 118. The first one you'll see, number one, is this. Am I more concerned with what man can do to me than what God has said to me? Are you more concerned of what man can do to me than what God has said to me? Is that, because remember, that the, the problem is if we elevate the fear of man over the fear of God, we flipped it on its head. And this is asking in that, have you, have you elevated the fear of man more than the fear of God? Have you, now do you fear man more and you're concerned with that than what God has said? Look at Psalm 118, just 1 through 6. Oh, oh give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. It's, it's this general appeal, right? Just, okay, everybody who's hearing it, this is what you're supposed to do. Get specific to the national level to Israel. He says, let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, the priestly leadership. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Very specifically, even if you think, well, I'm not part of the nation of Israel, as this is being written, you don't get to escape. Do you fear God? Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. There's a reason why Gentiles who feared Yahweh became known as God-fearers, right? Those who fear the Lord, let them stay, say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see, as you look at this and you're looking at that verse, what we realize as you go through this, the call is see who God is. He has said and shown he is a steadfast God. His love endures forever. But is, have you elevated your fear of man over what God has said? And now I'm going to react out of fear. And isn't it interesting because verse 6, it's like he's preaching to himself. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And then I'm like, well, I can show you what man can do to you, and I can make you a nice list. It's a very long list. But he has to remind himself, the Lord is on my side. This is what he has said. In, in your life, you're examining life circumstances, decision-making, are you elevating the fear of man over the fear of God? Are you more concerned about what a person can do to you than what God has said to you. Because if your concern becomes more about what that person can do, then your answer to what can man do to me, you can answer it. You can actually fill in the blank. Well, they could do this to me, so I'm now going to go do something different. Whoa, hold a second. What did God say about that? Will you follow through and do it? The second thing I would tell you, here's another diagnostic question is, do I find greater security trusting in what other people can do for me 
than what God does and has done for me? This is a, it's a desire question. Your security, is that found trusting what other people can do for you more than what God does and has done for you? Well, I know this person can give me this, and I trust more than that, than what God has already shown me, what he's done through his son and delivering from my sins, and what he's shown to continue to do for me, deliver me from my circumstances and bring me through. Just look, if you're looking there, I'm going to read down 7 through 13. It says, the Lord is on my, my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me, right? The, the picture here is this powerful picture of people that are actively going after. Actually, this is, a, this is known as a messianic psalm. It's even a, 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 what's called a kingly psalm. It actually is one that, that is describing this king. Likely David, but it really is more encompassing of, of the kings of Israel and, and, and could look back. The Lord is on my side. He's my helper. I shall look on triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to do what? Trust in man. And see, the, the fear of man that pushes on us is we see it, we think, well, hold a minute. If I just trust in what they do, they can deliver me. And not trusting God. And it starts driving us away from him. It's interesting. It says it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. I mean, realize this would have been a huge temptation. And we see it in the nation of Israel. Rather than trusting God, what do they keep doing when you see the kings that come behind David? And then Solomon and Absalom. And they just, the, the divided kingdom. I will make treaties and I will trust in other princes, other nations. And instead of finding their security in God, they were finding security. The leadership of Israel, literally the kings were going, you know what? I will align with this other nation rather than trusting the ways of God. I'll give them up. Because that's, that, that's the danger, Right? It's not that you shouldn't seek to live at peace with all men. I mean, that's part of what we, we would hear in the New Testament. But rather that I am willing to align myself with someone else to find security in them, even at the cost of trusting in God, what he does and has done for me. And so it starts drawing or driving us away from trusting in God. He goes on as he writes, he says, because all the nations surround me, so when the name of the Lord is, I cut them off or I fin them off, it's almost like I push them away, right? If I'm going to be in Christ, if, if I'm going to be following after God, I have to say, hold it a second. It has to be the ways of God, not my own. I can't trust in others. I have to trust in God. And if, if in your life you're facing decisions and what you see is, I'll just place my trust in others, not in God. They can deliver me. You know you are now trusting in the fear of man. It's drawing you away from the fear of God. He goes on and says that multiple times. He goes on. Literally, it's interesting. Verse 13, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord falling, so, but the Lord helped me. It's this picture like he just gets just shoved. But God is the one who rescues, who helps and saves. And so we really have to bet the question, do I find greater security trusting what other people can do for me than what God does and has done for me? 
is that will replace, I'm willing to sacrifice the ways of God in order to find security in the ways of man. The next one, number three, is this. And it's a test not only of security, now it's a test of satisfaction. Do I find my greatest satisfaction and joy in the approval of man rather than in the salvation of God? Look, as if you're looking down there, look at, look at 14 through 17. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does, does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. See, do you hear the satisfaction with what God has done? And the contrast here is, are you finding your greatest satisfaction and joy in the approval of man? I think this is one of the great temptations of the human heart. I just want to be liked. We have different terms for it. We call it peer pressure, right? Or financially, we used to call it, back in the 80s, I remember the phrase was keeping up with the Joneses, right? Financially, I have to look like everybody else. I got to show so that I'll be accepted in that group, right? We will change behaviors, won't we, right? I mean, just think about this, right? You know, one of the long-running jokes is you can look at a guy and you can kind of figure out when he stopped, when, you know, where he kind of matured into his 30s because his haircut's the same, his, you know, he hasn't shaved his, any differently since he turned 30, except, right? It's just where you get stuck. It's where you stop. Could you imagine if I had stopped in seventh grade? Let me give you a picture. My dad would describe to me for about a year growing up, he says, there is the daughter I never had. Okay, I have two sisters, by the way. I'm like, you know Why? I want you to look at my hair, and I just want you to envision for a second the glorious mullet that I had back here. Some of you now will not be eating lunch. You're like, I'm just going to eat dinner because that's just not a picture I want in my head. I did. I grew. You know why I grew a mullet? And it was a mullet. I have, by the way, all yearbooks from that year. I am, I am summarily destroying. Every time I find them, we just set them on fire. It's because that's what every other guy at school was doing. Well, we laugh about that, but not only do we do that in our childhood, we do that in our adulthood. And all of a sudden, I've got to have the cars, the houses. I've got to have my kids in the same schools. I've got to chase after the same vacations. I, I, you know, I, I'm going to say and believe the same thing so that I'll be accepted. We do it all the time. And the problem is it betrays that we will find greater satisfaction in the approval of others and their admiration of us than in the very salvation of God. You have to examine your heart. Is that what you're doing? Are you chasing after? Isn't it interesting how closely satisfaction and salvation come together? If I can find satisfaction in something, it's like it saved me. And Scripture says, be satisfied in your salvation. Be satisfied in God. Number four is this. Would I rather find relief from my sin 
in the ways of the world rather than rest and assurance in the discipline of God. Here's an uncomfortable one. Look at verse 18. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. What, what an account of how it describes what God has done. Do you realize that the psalmist doesn't, does he look at discipline as a bad thing here? No. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Look at verse 19 right below it. So open the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and do what? Give thanks to the Lord. Think about that for a second. I, don't, I, I can honestly say, I, 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 I'll raise my hand. I had to be disciplined my dad, by my dad multiple times growing up. I promise you, I never said thank you. Did not happen, right? Thanks, Dad. Let's do it again next Friday, right? Get on. Same bad time, same bad channel. Let's get on the calendar now, right? No, I will tell you, I had a healthy fear of my dad. Um, rightfully so. My, my dad is, by the way, one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, right? I'm just telling you, if you meet my dad, way better than me. And just, a, just <laughs> my dad's gentle, nice. I mean, I, you know, I thought for years the only person in this world that could make my dad raise his voice was me. I still believe that, by the way. Um, but the reality is, is, think about that. The psalmist says, find joy in the discipline, the severe discipline of God. See, one of the things is, there may be sin in your life that you're having to go through consequences for, that God is bringing about discipline and correction, and it may be severe. In your mind, you may think this is a step too far. But the, the real question at hand is, is this godly discipline coming down to bring about righteous correction in our life? And are you just trying to find a way to get out of it, right? So, yeah, I, I knew all the tricks growing up, right? You know, pad the backside, pillows, toilet paper, whatever it was, right? Deceive mom and dad, only tell them half a story. Because you tell them the full story, you're in trouble. So let's just make sure they only get the part that matters to save my hide, right? We, we do these things, though. And are, you, are we doing this in our lives because we think there's more salvation to be found from man than from God? And, and rather what we should do is rest and find assurance that the discipline of God is a good thing. So in your life, are you trying to run away from your consequences by continuing to manipulate situations? Are you trying to run away from the consequences of your sin by deceiving are you trying to run away from the consequences of your sin rather than accepting the godly correction so that the sin doesn't come about anymore? You see, that's a good thing to rejoice in. But how quickly our fear of man will go seek our salvation there rather than find it in the fear of God. And the last is this. Do I place my hope and trust more in the character of, God, in the character of other people than I do in the character of God? You realize this is the overarching thing going on in Psalm 118. Right? Look at how the psalm ends, the last two verses, and then we're going to look back at the first few verses again just quickly. Psalm, psalm 118, 28, you are my God, I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. 
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. This is the character of our God. For his steadfast love endures forever. Hold a minute. Where did you just hear that earlier? Verse 1, right? What does verse 1 say? Verse 1 says, i got to find verse 1. It's on the other sheet. And the other sheet. We're going to get there. Verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Hey, Israel, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Say it. His steadfast love endures forever. Hey, you priestly leadership. Hey, house of Aaron. Your God, he is good. So do what? Say it. His steadfast love endures forever. Hey, you, you God-fearers, those who fear God, your God, that God, he is good. So say it. His steadfast love endures forever. Stop trusting in man. Trust in the character of your God. Because those others are not like your God. Their steadfast love doesn't endure like his. But his never fails. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Like I said this morning, what I really want want you to walk out of here is thinking about how is it the fear of God is really driving you or drawing you away or excuse me, how is the fear of man driving you or drawing away from your trust in God? So here's my concluding question for you, just something that may help diagnose. Am I fearful of a person or persons because I desire what they can give or withhold or take from me more than you desire God? If that's your answer, yes, I desire what they can give, withhold, and take from me more than I desire God. You should repent of that and say, God, I say to you because I know you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. And so I will walk with you rather than walking by the fear of man. Father, we thank you that that the psalmist gives us just an example of what it looks like for those that are in leadership, those who, who rule a nation and what they have to say and remind the people of and remind themselves of that you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. Father, help us that we would be not drawn away, that we would be not driven by the fear of man so that it draws us and drives us away from you, our God. Help us, Father, that in our lives, even our fear would be controlled by our trust in you. Father, we know this is not something we can do on our own. We know that the Spirit must work in our hearts so this would be true. And so we pray with the Spirit work in our lives that we would trust fully, always, in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Let's stand together. We'll sing together. And as we sing in this time of response...